I invite you to rise. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, and that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. So I'm standing at center ice about to drop the puck at a hockey game on Friday night. Yes, at the Allen Americans. There we were, 320 members of Christ Church sitting in the arena. And I must say, before I continue with the story, just notice that my first act as a newly minted bishop was to bring 320 people to a hockey game on Super Bowl weekend. That's called subversive leadership. But I'm about to drop the puck. And the guy who's in charge of the puck dropping is really chatty, friendly guy, until he asks the question, so, because I'm dropping the puck because I brought so many people. He says, all these people you brought with you, where are they from? And I thought, here we go. I said, they're from my church. And instantly he said, oh, and disengaged. Most chatty guy around at the mention of church, disengaged. Body language is turning away from me. I thought, here we go. Well, up comes our account manager who sold us the 320 tickets. She's all chatty about church too. She goes to church. Oh, we're so glad you're here. We start talking about church. His body language is getting more and more distant, awkward. He's in the last place he wants to be. She starts asking me, well, what do you guys do for mission at your church? And I said, funny you should ask. This Sunday's our Mission Sunday, where we talk about all of our local mission outreaches to various local partners who are working with poverty issues and issues of single moms struggling and uh, benevolence issues within our church and then national issues and how do we support folks around the country and then globally building preschools and nutrition programs and churches overseas. And I notice as we're talking about mission, the guy's body language has shifted from here to here. And he's leaning into the conversation and he's interested. And finally he says, What's the name of your church? 
And what's your website address? And I told him, and here's my question for you. Why is it that stories of mission and service grab our attention? Even the hardest skeptics. Why do stories of mission and service grab our attention, grab our hearts? The answer is because mission is written into the DNA of what it means to be human. Mission is written into who we are as human beings, whether we know it or not. To be on mission, to be serving, is at the heart of what it means to be human because the God who made us is the God who is on mission, the God who is serving. You see, the challenge is we struggle to be on mission. We struggle with what it means to be on mission in the world. I know some of you, based on your churchmanship of what you grew up with, you're getting very nervous right now. You're like, oh no, it's Mission Sunday. This is gonna be the moment when we all get guilted into doing something crazy for Jesus. Remember, you'd go to those meetings in the evening and there'd be some missionary from overseas who says, I sold everything and I moved to Africa and you know, I lost a leg and I love Jesus. And you're thinking, I can't do this, this is crazy. And that's what mission always was. And yet we forget the fact that mission is in our homes, is in our schools, is in our workplaces, is in our neighborhoods, is all around the world. But this is what mission is. And here's the hope. It's not going to be a message of guilt today. This is not going to be, what are you doing for God? This is more of what God is doing in you. The hope for mission in us is that God is at work. And we see that in the transfiguration. This transfiguration story here in Mark chapter 9, if you turn there with me, you'll see that everything that's going on in this transfiguration story is actually still happening today. This is not a story that just took place 2,000 years ago. This is a story that God is reenacting with you and me and all believers on a regular basis, and he's doing it to grow us into the mission he's called us to be. I'll say that again. God is continually still reenacting this story this transfiguration story from Mark chapter nine in our lives today in order to train us up and grow us into the mission he's called us to. And so we start with the fact, well, let me, let me what's, what's my three points, right? My three, I did get off a plane from Rwanda on Tuesday, so it's a good thing I'm standing here. Okay, so what are my three points today? My three points, here's what Jesus is doing. Still today, Jesus is summoning disciples up the mountain. He's still doing it today, summoning us up the mountain. Point number two, he's doing that to sanctify us, to shape us, to reform us, to change us. He's not just transfigured. He's going to see us transfigured as well, right? So he's still summoning us up the mountain. He's sanctifying us on the mountain so that he can send us back down the mountain for the sake of others. You follow me? All right, there's the three points. First point, he is still today summoning his disciples up the mountain. He's still calling us to himself. Verse two of Mark chapter nine, it says that he took Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, when you read the Bible, you'll see that oftentimes when people go up to a high mountain, God is usually gonna show up there. That does not mean that God can't show up everywhere. He does show up in all kinds of places. But mountaintop experiences are often special places in the Bible where God meets his people. Think of Abraham up on Mount Moriah. Think of Moses up on Mount Sinai. Think of Elijah up on Mount Horeb. 
right? Think of Jesus going up the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mountain, right? And here again, he's calling these disciples up the mount. They are going to encounter God when they're there. What Jesus is doing here, summoning these three disciples up the mountain, is he's desiring to have an encounter with them, to show them something about himself. And man, do they see something. Verse 3, he is transfigured before them. It means changed, transformed. His clothing starts glowing, radiant light. They're, they're, they're grasping for language here. They said it's, it's, it's brilliant, intense white. And then I love how he says, more than anyone on earth could bleach. Right? They're, 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 they're scrambling to describe the brightness of this. What are they seeing? They're seeing what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. They're seeing a glimpse of the glory of God. And it shines. See, when Moses came down the mountain, remember, he comes down the mountain in Exodus 34, and as he comes down the mountain carrying the tablets, what do the Israelites see? They see his face, the skin of his face glowing. Why? Because they say he's been in the presence of God. The glory of God had shone on Moses, and now it was shining forth onto them from his skin. The reason that often the glory of God is described as this brightness is again, the banishment of light, right? This is pure and bright and holy, but also it's meant to be a picture of the beauty and the shininess of God. The glory of God, the kavod or the doxa in the New Testament, the glory of God is God's magnificence. God's goodness, God's character. They're seeing the beauty of the Lord. This is what God wants to reveal to us. He wants to teach us lots of things as he meets with us. But you know what God wants to most show us? Is his beauty, his majesty, his glory. Everything that makes God worthy of our praise. He wants to show that to you and I. And that's why he draws us up the mountain. We see this, in fact, as we come into church every week. We are drawn into the assembly of God. And again, you may say, I can meet God next to a waterfall or wherever. And of course you can. God can be met everywhere. But listen to the words of King David. David wanted in the face of all the challenges in his life, nothing more than to be in the house of God. Psalm 27, verse 5. So I may look upon your fair beauty. There was something about coming into the house of God with the, the word of God being read. In our cases, for the sacraments being administered, that we in our worship are drawn into the presence of God in a unique, special way. We behold his beauty. You know, to paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, religious people think God is useful. So the religious people see God as useful. Gospel people see God as beautiful. Do you see Jesus' beauty? He's drawing up the mountain still today to show you his beauty. I love those lyrics. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Jesus continually summons us up the mountain to show us his glory, to show us his beauty. And note who 
he calls up the mountain to show that to. I love that he brings Peter. Peter, verse two, Peter. Now he brings James and John, and trust me, if we kept reading, I'm sure we'd find enough that shows us just how wicked and broken James and John are. But by this point in the story, we know how broken Peter is because what's just happened? We preached on it a few weeks ago, right? What happened? Chapter eight, you all know Mark chapter eight off by heart, right? Peter confesses Christ. You are the Christ, the son of God. Amen, hallelujah. And then Peter says, Jesus, you're not gonna go to a cross. I'm not gonna let it happen. Forbid it, Lord. And what is Jesus' rebuke? It's a small rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke. You know, it's just a passing comment. Get behind me, Satan. The next story is Jesus going up the mountain to show his glory, his beauty to his disciples. And who does he invite? Peter. Oh, how this comforts our souls. Because it is not because Peter deserves to be shown God's glory. It's because Peter desperately needs to see God's glory. This is the heart of the gospel. We have never earned it and we never will. God summons us to himself. He summons us up the mountain. We who desperately need to see his glory, not we who in any way deserve it. We all know that. I mean, look at the fear in Peter, right? He puts his foot in his mouth. We'll get there in a second. But verse five, you know, he's talking about building three tents. And then I love how verse six explains it. He says, they, he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. Of course they were terrified. In the presence of the glory of God, any human being, our first response will be terror. If it was not for the gospel, it would be terror. Because if we see the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God, suddenly our ingloriousness, our lack of beauty, our sin just becomes so apparent. And we know that ingloriousness, we've all lived there. I went to a daddy-daughter dance several years ago with my youngest daughter. So I took our youngest daughter to a daddy-daughter dance. I had my suit on. She had a cute little dress on. And we went to the daddy-daughter dance. It was so great. And we played bingo. And that was my first mistake. Because we were playing bingo. And we kept losing at bingo. And uh, we're losing. And I'm noticing that the little girl over here, the little girl in the little white tutu, uh, keeps winning. She's winning every round of bingo, and I'm not winning any bingo. And the rage in me is growing. The little girl with the tutu, I am convincing myself, has concocted a plan. They have brought Sharpies and Whiteout. They are messing with their bingo pads. Um, They're totally cheating. I'm building a whole narrative about the nefarious nature of this father and daughter, and I'm just getting more and more upset. And finally then, B14 is called... I win bingo and I just jog down the aisle. I mean, I am so excited to get my little like two cent little plastic thing and I'm shaking the air and I'm looking at the girl with the white tutu and I look at her dad and I sit back down and I look at my daughter staring at me with that look that just said everything. And I thought, how inglorious am I? And I'm talking about a bingo game let alone if we look at how we live in the workplace, with our neighbors, in our marriages, in our daily life. We know the ingloriousness. We know we do not deserve to be brought up the mountain. And yet the gift of God is this. He calls us. He summons us. What does Jesus say in Mark chapter 2? He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus still today is summoning 
disciples up the mountain. He does it again and again, showing us his glory. But it's for the purpose of not just showing off his glory, but that we would actually see the hope of our own glory. Yes, look here at verse two. It says, after six days. Now, every time you see a chronological reference in scripture, you've got to ask, why did Mark include that? Why does he care to mention six days? What he's doing is he's linking the transfiguration event with something that just happened. He wants you to glue these events together. Well, what just happened? Well, in chapter eight, after the get behind me Satan moment, what does Jesus say? In Matthew eight, verse 34, Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, right? So the end of his teaching on following him, coming and following, being a disciple, immediately then he moves to transfiguration. He moves up the mountain. Why do these have to live together? Here's why. Because what Jesus is saying is if you're going to follow me, I'm going to show you as followers what your future looks like. I'm going to show you as followers that if you follow me, if you do deny self, if you do take up your cross daily and follow me, let me show you what life is going to look like. I'm going to show you my glory. And guess what? That glory is the promise for your life as well. For isn't it true that when Jesus calls us to follow him as disciples, what he's saying is come and live my life. Come and learn my life. It's not just that we're to follow a set of teachings, but we're actually to embody the way he lives his life. Jesus' own life as our rabbi and master becomes the model of how we live our lives. He shows forth his glory that we, in fact, from one degree of glory to the next, can become like him. Note this, St. Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul uses the identical word transfiguration when he speaks about us. You think Jesus' transfiguration, ooh, shiny. Paul talks about our transfiguration, same word. Here's what he says. He says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, your Bible says, transformed. It's the word transfigured, same word. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transfigured into the same image as the sun. His transfiguration is a picture of our own. We are being sanctified. We are being, as the Eastern Orthodox would say, being glorified. We are actually step by step being changed to be more like him, to actually bear his glory. Can you hear it? It's amazing. And it changes the way we see ourselves and it changes the way we see the world, the potential of the human being, the potential of transformation in our lives. I love those words from C.S. Lewis in the weight of glory. I mean, he says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people, he says. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Why? Because in Christ, we are being sanctified, transformed. You know, we talk not enough in the church about Christ-likeness. When I was first saved, when I was first introduced to Jesus, I learned all about what I'd been saved from. I've been saved from sin, death, and hell, right? Praise the Lord. But I wasn't taught 
what I've been saved for. I know what I'm saved from, but what am I saved for? And remember the first time someone opened up the scriptures to talk about Christ-likeness, that hope of Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And realizing that our inheritance, what we've been saved for, is his own life. His life more and more living in us, being transformed into his likeness, being transfigured. Transfiguration Sunday is not just about standing in awe of Jesus' transfiguration. Wow, look at the glory. Transfiguration Sunday is about recognizing that he is bringing about that glory in you and I. That is what he is doing. Now, I know at this point in the sermon, it would be great if I had one of those dramatic conversion moment stories. I could say, you know, here's a person who was an absolute slug and he met Jesus one day and was transformed and instantly kind of a road to Damascus thing. We love those kind of stories. I love those kind of stories. But you know what is more common is the slow stories, the slow transformations, the slow two steps forward, one step back kind of stories, struggling forward. You know, if I asked my kids today, I think, and I said, who is the most joyful person, most sort of enthusiastic person you've ever met? If they didn't say their mother, they would say Father Jared. Now, Father Jared in Ottawa was a curate of mine. Jared was six foot five or so, big boy, huge beard. I would take him with me just for security detail purposes. And Jared had a smile and a personality that just would light up a room. You put Jared on a bus, within five minutes, half the bus is talking about Jesus. Jared never met a stranger. Jared was just unbelievable contagious in his joy. But here's the thing about Jared. Jared, and you'd say, well, maybe Jared was always like that. No, if you'd met Jared 10 years before we met him, you would have thought there's no way this guy could ever become like this. Jared was an angry juvenile delinquent in jail as a drug dealer who was constantly getting fights in bars. He was an angry, miserable human being. And the Lord grabbed a hold of Jared through a Bible study in jail. And you say, did he transform right away? No, he was still a pretty miserable Christian for the first few years, but it was having its effect. I remember asking Jared, I said, what was the big transforming moment? Did you read a book or two? Did you get some therapy? Like, were there some big eureka moment when suddenly the joy just broke forward? He said, no. He said, I just kept going to church week after week, went to church, word and sacrament each week, church year after church year after church year. And he said, and I woke up one day and realized I have the joy of the Lord exuding out of me. It doesn't happen like this. Most often, it happens over time. God sanctifying us from one degree of glory to the next. This is the promise. This is our sanctification, our glorification, our transformation, our transfiguration. But my final point, it's not for you and it's not for me. He doesn't do it so that we can say, oh, wow, I'm just so transfigured. (laughs) You're not as transfigured as you think you are. There's more work to be done. He does it for the sake of those who are down the mountain, right? He summons you up and he sanctifies you on the mountain week after week and then sends you down the mountain. End of our service, right? We get sent out. After we've experienced all the joy of the gospel, we don't just put out cots and hang out here and live at church all week. We get sent. See, Jesus... His rebuke, or at least the, 
his father's rebuke in the cloud. You know, Peter's like, let's build three houses, three little shacks, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I could unpack that for a year, but let's just leave that for now and just say one of the problems that Peter had here was that he wanted to stay on the mountain. He wanted to stay up there. And, and you can't blame him, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to stay up there? The glory of the Lord is being shown. It's amazing. By the way, Sean is a word. It's not a name of a person. Sean is, is, is King's English. But the, the glory Sean, shown, the glory shown. Um, and he wanted to stay up there. But the problem is Jesus wasn't going to stay up there. Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain. What is he talking with Moses and Elijah about? We don't know. Well, actually we do. That's why scripture interprets scripture. You read Luke's version of the story. Luke chapter nine tells us what they were talking about. It says that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about his departure. And that word departure is actually the word exodus. He's talking about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that from this point on in Mark's gospel, he will be making his way to Jerusalem knowing that his mission is to go there, bear the sins of humanity in his body, die the death we should have died, then rise from the dead, victory over sin and death, and then send the Holy Spirit upon us to then continue this work of sanctification as we go on mission. This is what he knows he's going to. He's going to the Exodus, the great freedom moment from us from sin and death. He doesn't stay on the mountain. Jesus goes down the mountain. And guess what, Peter? If you're going to follow Jesus, if he's going down the mountain, you're going down the mountain too, Peter. You can't stay up here. See, this is God's character. God never stays in the mountain. The God of our scriptures never stays in the mountain. He never stays up. He always comes down. Here in our creed, we say it every week, for us and for our salvation, he came down. God is always coming down to the base of the mountain, to those who need him most, who don't know him, who don't deserve him. This is the nature of our God, always to come down. I know I say it week after week, but I'll keep saying it. If you look in our world at every other religion and worldview, whether it's a religion or whether it's you know, some sort of self-help improvement scheme, it's always about the work being done by you. You've got to go figure yourself out. You've got to go on a journey. You've got to go climb a mountain. You've got to attain some moral height and then you'll find fruitfulness and sanctification, whatever it may be. It's only in Christianity where God comes down to us and meets us in the muck, and meets us at the base of the mountain, in our idolatry, in our sin, in our death, to save us. And if that's where Jesus goes, that's where he's going to continually call us. In fact, that's where our Christ-likeness becomes the most apparent. What does Jesus say at the evening of the resurrection, John 20? He says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In the same way that the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Always being sent to the base of the mountain for the sake of the world. We can live in our little cloisters. We can live in our little holy clubs or we can follow after Jesus and go to the least of these on the margins and in the dirty places. You know, this Sunday is our World Mission Sunday. We put out our little World Mission infographic at the back. You can flip through there. Some of you have been doing that through the sermon, flipping through it. Um, <laughs> And you'll see that there's, it's, it's, a, it's a testimony to what we've done this last year as a parish, uh, both locally, nationally, and globally with our mission work. And here's the important thing to realize. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful praiseworthy thing to say, praise God for what he's done, but this is not to congratulate us. We do not publish this to pat ourselves on the back and go, ooh, congratulations. 
Right? Look what you did. Check the box. We're on mission. No, we put the infographic out there with numbers and pictures so I can stir, we can have our imagines, imaginations stirred for more mission. We put it there so that we can actually have an enlarged vision, a grown vision of what the Lord could be doing. I mean, this year we're doing a larger ask for Rwanda than we did last year. And guess what? Uh, I'm not a prophet, but I work for a nonprofit. I'll tell you, next year after that, that did not land at all. (laughs) I'm not the son of a prophet nor a prophet, but I work for a nonprofit. That is funny, people. (laughs) I know I'm dressed with puffy sleeves today, but you can at least laugh, okay? Um, Why did I say that? Um, All you see are puffy sleeves now. Um, In 2025, we'll be raising our ask again. And in 2026, we'll be raising our ask again because that's what mission does. We don't congratulate ourselves. We ask God to convict us for even more. A growing vision. And I share this with you. When I was in Rwanda last week and I was being consecrated a bishop, yes, it took five hours, five, some of you watched, five hours, like they were just trying to make it stick, five hours trying to get me consecrated. At the end, we had a big party and everyone's getting up with all their congratulations, congratulations, and it was really sweet and really nice. But then Bishop Henry Arambi, who's the Bishop of Uganda, the neighboring country right beside Rwanda, the retired archbishop, he gets up and he gets the microphone and says, today we do not say congratulations. I thought, oh no, here we go. He said, today we we do not say congratulations. Congratulations is what we say after the work is well done at the end and you finished well. He said, today we simply say, welcome aboard. Friends, The reason that mission stories and stories of service grab our hearts is because human beings are made for mission. We're made to sacrificially pour out our lives by going, by funding and sending, by being involved in mission work. It's who we are and what we're made for. But here's the joy, is that every week before Jesus sends us out, He first summons us here to himself and he shows us a glimpse of his glory, word and sacrament. And he says, here's how I am sanctifying you. Friends, it's World Mission Sunday. It's World Mission Sunday. What can I say but welcome aboard. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.